The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 22. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Our sermon today is Deuteronomy 15. It's verses 1 through 11. I've entitled this Ha Shemitah, the remission. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. 
And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. I want you to know that there are going to be people that will leave the superior word over this particular sermon. I'm talking about people online, maybe somebody here that gets offended over it. That doesn't bother me. I stick to the word of God, and I'm not here to mess with things that are not biblical, okay? So it's just the way it is. I will get emails from people that will be upset that I say what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. So be ready for that. The passage today deals with a precept known as the Shemitah. It is a precept that is a part of the law of Moses. Before we get too far along, there are a few questions for me to see how theologically sound you are. I've got three questions for you. Who was the law of Moses given to? Israel. Does the law of Moses pertain to anyone else? Never did. It never will. Three, through Christ's work, what is the state of the law of Moses? It is obsolete, it is annulled, it is set aside, it is done. Because the Shemitah is a part of the law of Moses, because the law of Moses only applied to Israel under the law, and because the law of Moses is annulled in Christ, for any who come to Christ, the Shemitah has nothing to do with anything in our world today. Nothing. That is, except as it is typologically fulfilled for us when we come to Christ. In other words, and as an example, the Day of Atonement was for Israel alone, for Israel under the law, and it is fulfilled in Christ. If you don't know that, go back and watch the Leviticus 16 and the Leviticus 23 sermons, and you will see that. The only thing about the Day of Atonement relevant to us now is how it is fulfilled for us in Christ. He is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. The Shemitah is no different. I bring this up because there is a gigantically popular teaching by a Jewish guy that says that those nations who fail to follow the precepts of the Shemitah would be judged by God for not doing so. In particular, he focuses heavily on America, claiming that our national calamities are based on a rotating cycle of the Shemitah. 
This is not just extremely unsound theology. This is heresy. The problem with him is that he has absolutely no idea what he is talking about on this or a host of other issues that he claims spiritual insights into. And the next problem is that because he is Jewish, people immediately associate him with being a specialist on all things Bible-related. That is a logical fallacy known as a genetic fallacy. A genetic fallacy occurs when a claim is made and is accepted as true or false based on the origin of the claim. My parents told me that God exists, therefore God exists. In this case, Jonathan Kahn is a Jew, therefore his biblical insights are valid. It is a scary place for those who hold to this. It is unprofitable except for the one who makes stuff up in this capacity, and it results in misinformed people who have no idea about what something, such as the Shemitah, is in the Bible for. I will give you a hint. Think Jesus. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 31. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, that's the word there, Shemitah, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. I chose this for our text first because the Shemitah is mentioned only five times in Scripture. Four of those times are in the passage that we just read a few minutes ago, Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11, okay? And the final time is in the passage from Deuteronomy. Has anybody here read the book that he wrote about the Shemitah? Okay, nobody here has. I can tell you that nothing he says in there matches what we just read from those five verses. Nothing. He made stuff up and he profited off of it. Okay? That is all of the information. Those verses are all that we have on the Shemitah. Anything brought up or claimed apart from those verses has nothing to do with what Scripture teaches. As we will see today, the year of release was at the same time as the seventh year Sabbath. If you remember from Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee occurred after seven of these cycles in the 50th year. It's important to understand that there is no biblical record of the year of Jubilee ever being observed, nor of which year it was started, even if it was ever observed. Does everybody know that? In the Bible, the year of Jubilee is never mentioned outside of the law of Moses. Further, it is, now, Isaiah talks about the Jubilee, okay? He cites it in the prophetic writings, but it, I'm talking about the observance of the Jubilee. There is no record of it having been observed, and they have no idea the first time it was observed, if it ever was observed. The Bible does not tell you. Further, it could not have been observed during times of exile. And more, the Shemitah year does not correspond to the year of Jubilee. Rather, it precedes it. And more. There is no biblical record of the Shemitah being observed, nor is it known if anyone ever observed it while in exile. And more, if it was observed, nobody knows the first year that it was observed, because the Bible is completely silent on those things. In other words, based on Scripture alone, which is where we get our doctrine, nobody knows when any of these mandates were observed, or even if they were ever observed, even once. This should clue people into the fact that the mandates given in the law are typical of Christ. That is the reason they are included. Nothing else about them is relevant to the biblical narrative. If you bought the book, you wasted your money. Stick with the Bible and you will be far better off. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today 
and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, at this point in the sermon, I've probably lost 20 or 30 viewers over the next couple days. They will send me an angry email and say they're never going to listen to me again. That is fine. I do not care. I stick to the Bible, and there's a reason for that. It's because the Bible is where we get our life, our practice, and our doctrine. Our first thought today, a release to the Lord, verses 1 through 6. The transition from chapter 14 to 15 is interesting. Chapter 14 ended with the thought of the third year of tithing, which especially is intended to care for the poor, even though the tithe is designated for Levi. It extends to the poor of the land. Now chapter 15 begins with a seven-year period also pertaining to the care of the poor. The number 10, as in the tithe, signifies the perfection of divine order. Number three, as in the year of the tithe, signifies that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire. The number seven, as in the year of release, is the number of spiritual perfection. There is a harmonious working together of the various concepts in order to reveal how these things anticipate the work of Christ in redemptive history. The words of the law find their fulfillment in what he has accomplished. Understanding that, we begin. Verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Miketz shevashanim ta'ase shemita. From end seven years, you shall make remission. The meaning of end is not after seven years, but the end of the seven-year cycle, meaning the seventh year is what is being discussed. This was already seen in Leviticus. It is not seven and then, but six and then. Each six-year period is followed by a special one-year time of remission. This is the same as the year of tithe of the previous chapter. It was not three and then, but two and then. Here is introduced the word Shemitah, or remission. This is the first of five times it will be used, all in Deuteronomy, and with four of them in this chapter. It means a letting drop, and thus a remitting. The word comes from Shemat, signifying to let drop or even to cast down. The precept here follows from Exodus 21, verse 2, where it says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. However, and before continuing, the precept concerning Hebrew slaves being released in the seventh year is one that is debated over. Does this mean the year of remission now being looked at, or does it mean six years of service regardless of this year of release? That will be evaluated when we get to verse 12, which will occur in two weeks from now, because next week we have a Resurrection Day sermon. The next reference is found in Exodus 23. I should say the Lord willing, because we may be raptured out of here today, but... Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. This allowance is the seventh year Sabbath of the land. It is not the same provision as the Shemitah, but it surely is the same seven-year period. One is the Sabbath of the land, the other is a release from debts. The Sabbath of the land is then further detailed in Leviticus 25, where it says, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. 
for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. To understand all of the details, it would be good to go back and review those particular sermons. Moses is now giving a new stipulation to be performed on this seventh sacred year. One could look at this as an expansion of what has thus far been presented. A remission or a letting go of all debts is to be made, as Moses next says. Verse 2, and this is the form of the release. Veze debar ha shemitah. And this word, the remission. In other words, what will now be stated is the principle set forth for the remission. And that word is, verse 2 continues, every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. Shamot kal ba'al mashe yadol asher yashe be're'ehu. Shall let drop every master of the loan of his hand who has lent in his neighbor. Here's a word found only this one time in scripture. Mashe. It means alone. It is from the verb nasha, also found in this verse, which means to lend. The picture is made vibrant with the words. The owner of the Lord is to open his hand and simply let it fall to the ground. From there, Moses says, before I go on, does anybody know that our laws on um, going bankrupt are based on the Bible? Did you know that? The seventh year of remission, it used to be seven years for the bankruptcy. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that in. Came to mind while I'm doing this. Verse 2 continues. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother. Lo yigos et re'ehu ve'et achiv. No exacting of his neighbor and of his brother. The word nagas is used. It is from a root signifying to drive an animal. It was used of the harsh taskmasters over the people while in Egypt. It gives a sense of coming hard after the one with the debt. This was not to be done to neighbor or brother. But the meaning of this has to be drawn from the surrounding context. A person may have a non-Hebrew neighbor. For him, this did not apply. Thus, neighbor is further defined as brother. In other words, this is referring to dealings solely between the Hebrew people. Verse 2 continues, because it is called the Lord's release. Kikara shemitah le Yehovah, for called remission to Yehovah. In other words, one can paraphrase this as, because proclamation has been made of the Lord's release. That is Albert Barnes' explanation of it. This is not a release in a general sense, but it is a release to the Lord. This year of remission is, like the Sabbath year, to honor the Lord. It was to be an acknowledgement of their position before the Lord, and they were to deal with their neighbor as the Lord would deal with them. In the end, they are the Lord's people. They were stewards of his land, and they were the recipients of his kindness. To honor him because of these things, they were to thus act accordingly with their fellow Hebrews. This continues to be seen in the next words. Verse 3, of a foreigner, you may require it. Here it speaks of the nokri, or stranger. It signifies a foreigner or an alien, thus someone outside of the covenant people. This is not a mark of superiority over them, nor is it a mark of severity of treatment towards them. The reason for this is because they were not bound to the same laws as Israel. While Israel was obligated to not sow, plow, or prune during the Sabbath year, the strangers were not under that obligation. Hence, they would have the usual income as during any other year. Thus, they were expected to pay their debts. Such was not the case with Israel. As this was so, verse 3 continues, 
but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. And which become to you, your brother, you shall let drop your hand. The greatest debate concerning this remission is whether it applies only during the seventh year or if it is permanent. If during the seventh year, it means that the debt is let go of or released during that year, but then it can be picked up again in the next year. This is the view that most scholars take. Kyle, for example, uses Exodus 23:11 to justify this view. They're using the same word. It says, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. His analysis says it must be interpreted in the same manner here as there. And as it is not used there to denote the entire renunciation of a field or possession, so here it cannot mean the entire renunciation of what had been lent, but simply leaving it, for example, not pressing for it during the seventh year. One does not logically follow after the other. How someone can see a precept that instructs someone to not plow a field for a year equate directly to canceling a debt for only one year is very hard to follow. The point of releasing a debt is to restore a person to a debt-free productive state. The point of not plowing one's field was for the field to renourish itself and to provide for the poor. Does everybody see the difference? Okay. It goes against everything that the Lord does for his people to say that the remission of the debt is only for a temporary period. And when this is a remission to the Lord, it means that it is the Lord who is expecting it to be remitted. Even Jesus spoke of this precept in Luke chapter 7. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Jesus went on to equate the woman weeping at his feet with the one who knew she owed a great debt. When he went on to say to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven, he didn't mean they were forgiven but would be remembered again someday. He meant that they were forgiven forever. Not three ever, but forever. Verse 4, except when there may be no poor among you. Ephes Ki lo yiye becha evyon, end, for no may become in your poor. The words are widely translated, many simply passing over the word ephes, or end. It signifies a ceasing, an end, an uttermost part, and so on. What is surely being conveyed is not except as the New King James Version says, because if it did, then that would show a logical contradiction with what it says. Verse 11 clearly and unambiguously says that there will always be poor among the people. You see that using the word except, now you have a contradiction in the Bible. So that is not what they are relaying in this particular passage. What is being conveyed is for the end purpose of there being no poor among you. This was to be a remedy to alleviate the poor from the land. As more people cropped up in the next six years, they were to be given the same relief. Everybody see that as well? In other words, in verse 11, it says, the poor will always be among you. And he's saying that this is, New King James Version says, except. So it's saying that there will be a time when there's no poor among you, and then you don't have to do this. That's incorrect, because poor will crop up in the next six years. Every seven years, you were to take care of getting rid of this debt for any debt that anybody had. Everybody got that? It's very important to remember this. 
The remission of this debt for those who had come into poverty was an act of the Lord's mercy. It is his law and it is his provision within the law. To not obey the precept then reflected a disobedience to his command as well as a lack of faith in the Lord. The lack of faith is because of what Moses next says. Verse 4 continues, For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land. It is a statement of surety. Ki barech yeberacha Yehovah ba'aretz. For blessing will bless you, Yehovah, in the land. It is a precept that is found several times in the Proverbs, such as Proverbs 19.17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, meaning the Lord, will pay back what he is given. What seems contradictory, but which is taken almost as an axiom in Scripture, is that the person who gives generously will generally receive increase because of what he has given. In the case of Israel, the Lord, through Moses, indicates that in being obedient to the precept, he will bless them abundantly in the land. Verse 4 continues, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. They are the often repeated words of Deuteronomy. We've seen these words again and again and again, something which forms its own emphasis. The Lord is the giver of the land. Israel is the recipient of the land. As this is so, then Israel has a responsibility to act in accord with the precepts of the law. In failing to pay heed, they can just as easily be dispossessed from what they possess, as Moses next conveys to them. Verse 5, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God. Rak im shamoa tishma bekol Yehovah Elohecha. Only if hearing you will hear the voice of Yehovah your God. The word rak is used in a limiting sense. This is how things are, but only if certain conditions are met. If they are not, then the promise of blessing cannot be anticipated, nor will it be forthcoming. Also, the words here once again reveal the doctrine of divine inspiration. Moses is the one speaking, and yet he explicitly states that what he is saying is the voice of Jehovah. That continues to be seen in the next words. Verse 5 continues, To observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. The translation is incorrect. It says, Lishmor la'asot et kal ha-mitzvah. To watch to do all the commandment. It is singular, not plural. It is one commandment, even if it is made up of various precepts, statutes, and judgments. To neglect one part of the whole is to fail to observe the entire commandment. Moses just spoke of hearing, meaning hearkening to the Lord's voice. Now he says that his voice is conveyed in all the commandment which I command you. Moses is carefully relaying to Israel that what he is speaking out is, in fact, the voice of the Lord. What he says is to be considered as conveyed by Jehovah himself. Therefore, if the people are obedient to the commandment, they can expect the blessing that comes with the commandment. As he next says, verse 6, For the Lord your God will bless you, just as he has promised you. The Hebrew is in the perfect form, and it is thus stronger. For the Lord your God has blessed you. The meaning is that his favor is on them, and it will continue on them if they are careful to keep the commandment. For this reason, there is no excuse to oppress one another. They are blessed, and that will continue. So why should dropping alone in the seventh year even be considered an inconvenience? They were given grace, and they needed to be gracious and merciful as well. And because of the Lord's blessing, verse 6 continues, You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Ve'ha'avta goyim rabim ve'ata lo ta'avot. 
and you shall lend nations many, and you know shall borrow. Here is a new and rather rare verb, avat. It comes from the noun avot, which is an article that is pledged. Thus, it can mean to lend or to borrow, depending on the form of the verb. Both meanings are used in this one clause. This verb, avat, is closely related to the word eved, translated as servant. The connection is easily seen in Proverbs 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. In lending to the nations, they would become debtor nations of whom Israel would then rule over. Verse 6 continues, you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. This was certainly fulfilled during the reign of David and then Solomon. But it is also true that other nations occasionally reigned over Israel from the time of the judges and on. Thus, it shows that Israel was not obedient to the commandment. If they were, such would not have been the case. Nehemiah even explicitly states this during his lengthy prayer of confession to the Lord while using the same word that Moses now uses, thus admitting that they had failed to do as the Lord instructed. Here's what it says in Nehemiah 9. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also, here's that word, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. Obey the voice of the Lord your God. Observe that which he has spoken to you. Be careful to observe in this life you trod. This is what I am instructing you. You are to release all debts in the seventh year. You shall do this because I have so instructed you. Do not worry about loss. You shall not fear. Just be obedient to the precept, remain true. And I will bless you with a blessing in all that you do. Things will turn out fine if you hearken to my word. Good things shall come upon you if you just carefully observe all you have heard. Our second thought today, you shall open your hand wide. It's verses 7 through 11. Of the following five verses, there is a decidedly chiastic structure to them. I'm going to go through this, and you'll see that. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, the seventh year, the year of release. And I entitled this, Taking Care of the Needy. I found this on 25 January of this year when I typed this sermon. A, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. A, at the bottom, to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. B, but you shall open your hand wide. B, you shall open your hand wide. C, lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. C, you shall surely give to him. D, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. D, and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And X, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Everybody see the structure? Verse seven, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren, ki becha evyon me'achad achecha, for become in you poor from one your brothers. The Hebrew reads as it did in verse four, becha, in you. Moses has been consistently speaking in the singular. At times, such as now, it is surely speaking of the nation, in you, Israel. At times, he's probably referring to each individual. You, Israelite, are to do this. The entire passage is being kept very personal. Here, when he speaks of a person in Israel, he says that person is in you. One of the people within the body becomes needy. 
Moses then further defines him saying, verse seven, going on within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord, your God is giving you being within the gates signifies closeness. It would also generally signify not just a Hebrew brother, but a person probably from within the same tribe of Israel. But regardless of that, Moses again notes that it is in the land given to them by the Lord. They did nothing to merit what they possessed, and yet they possessed the land. Further, they lived within the gate of the land, implying security. And yet there is a brother who is not secure. He is rather in need. If so, verse 7 going on, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother. To harden the heart is to be equated with searing one's conscience. The heart is the seat of reasoning and understanding. And yet, one can purposefully say, I see no reason to help this person. He got himself into his pickle, and so he can get himself out. In this, he will then shut his hand. It is a new word in scripture, kafatz, translated as shut. It comes from a primitive root, meaning to draw together. One can think of walking by this poor guy, thinking his evil thoughts, and then clenching his hand so that no chance of money being passed on to him could occur. And yet this person is in a land that was given to him, and he's living securely within the gates of the city of the land. Thus, verse 8, but you shall open your hand wide to him. Ki fatoach tiftach et yadecha lo. For opening, you shall open your hand to him. Notice the contrast. Shutting hand, bad, widely open, good. The sense is just the opposite of the last thought. The miserly person will literally clench his fist as he encounters poverty Pete. But the people are to instead not just open the hand, but to open it generously. Obviously, the hand is being used in place of what the hand possesses. Therefore, a wide open hand signifies gracious and abundant giving. And more, verse 8 continues, and willingly lend him sufficient for his need. Moses uses the same word, avat, that was introduced into verse 6, and it is repeated for emphasis. And lending, you shall lend sufficient his need. In other words, this stress is said in contrast to the hardened heart. Thus, the paraphrase of willingly is well stated. Also, there's another new word here, machsor. It signifies a lack or a need. It is the noun form of the more common verb found in the next clause. Verse 8 continues, whatever he needs. Asher yechsar lo, whatever needs to him. This is added to ensure that the idea of the stresses in the previous two clauses are perfectly understood. If he needs $5, you are to open your hand. If he needs $5,000, you are to open your hand. He has a need. You can meet the need. You are to do so. And this is especially to be considered at all times, accepting none. Verse 9, beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. The Hebrew is very forceful. Hishamer lecha pen yye davar im levavecha ve liyaal. Watch to you, lest become word into your heart worthless. The person knows that he is supposed to help out his fellow Hebrew, but then he suddenly realizes that if he does, he will lose his money in doing so. It is a worthless thought set in contrast to the high value of what this poor person needs. That thought is, verse 9 continues, saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. Is near year the seventh, the remission. 
In other words, the person has to pay back any loans during the first six years. But in the seventh year, the loan is to be forgiven. But then he thinks, wait, this is the third month of the sixth year. In less than a year, I will have to let the loan drop. It is a worthless thought to the Lord, and it is not to be considered. It is the Lord's land. This guy belongs to his people. The law was given by him, meaning the Lord, and there can be no excuse for withholding what he is supposed to willingly provide. These words surely indicate that the remission of the debts is not a temporary one-year remission to be taken up again after the Shemitah. Rather, the year of remission means the debt is to be forgiven wholly and entirely, forever. Otherwise, the importance of these words would be wholly without merit. The remission was to be forever. Thus, the wrong attitude creeps in. Verse 9 continues, And your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Here it says, And your eye be evil, be'achicha, or in your brother. Again, the words of Moses are close and personal throughout the entire passage. Whether speaking of Israel in the singular, or speaking to the individual of Israel, the words demonstrate an evident closeness in the matter at hand. The evil eye is an eye of wickedness. It is uncaring, it is greedy, and so on. Jesus uses the term in the New Testament, first in a parable. Is it not lawful for me to do good, what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. And again, in general discourse, he says the following. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. If someone is to be this way, it will not go unnoticed. Verse 9 going on, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. Again, it is close and personal, and become in you sin. The Shemitah is to Jehovah. Thus, in neglecting the need of the needy, it is an attack against the precept of the Lord. And the precept of the Lord is to be considered as a representation of the character and moral nature of the Lord. To treat this matter as such is to trample on the name of the Lord who designated the Shemitah in the first place. In such a situation, the imputation of sin is a given. To avoid such a thing, verse 10, you shall surely give to him. The Hebrew is again emphatic, giving you shall give to him. Despite the coming year of remission, there should be no consideration at all of that fact. Rather, verse 10 continues, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. This is set in contrast to the words, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. Instead of entertaining a worthless thought, there should be no evil in the heart, but rather a sense of joy. This is because it is in accord with the law, it is right towards a fellow Israelite, and it is pleasing in the sight of the Lord who gave the command in the first place. As Moses says, verse 10 continues, because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you. The word translated as because is galal. It is a noun coming from the verb galal, which means to roll. In other words, in doing right, blessing will roll right back upon the right doer. And that will be, verse 10 continues, in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. The word translated as put your hand signifies an outstretching of the hand. This takes the reader right back to verses 7 and 8, where Moses said to not shut the hand, but to open it wide. 
In the act of the unclenched hand, blessing will come back upon all the works of that person's outstretched hand. Verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. The point of opening the hand wide is to alleviate the plight of the poor who arise in the land. Life is time and chance, according to Solomon. In this, circumstances change and difficult conditions arise for even the most industrious or talented soul. The Lord doesn't interfere in these type of things. He allows people to make decisions and some of them will be poorly made. This is why the poor will never cease from the land. The Shemitah was given to alleviate this and to restore such brothers through the remission of debt. In this, the poor will be restored. It is the Lord's land, they are his people, and these are his precepts. And so, Moses says, verse 11, finishing up with, Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. Moses repeats his words from verse 8, Opening you shall open, thus stressing the importance of the matter. The hand is to be extended, and what comes to it is to be given away without consideration of the year of remission. But Moses extends the thought now to close out the passage by adding in another word to describe his plight, ani. It signifies one who is humbled, lowly, or afflicted. The idea for adding this in is surely to contrast the blessing that lies ahead for tending to his need. He is humbled, you will be blessed. He is lowly, you will be exalted. He is needy, you will be filled. The Shemitah has come, and I must let go of what you owe, and I know that it is the right thing to do. It would be great if I got it all back, but even so, the Lord has instructed that I provide remission to you. And who can argue with that? It's a small thing to do, when everything came from him in the first place, and all along he has been faithful and true. From him has come goodness as a smile from his face. I know that from him has come so much more than anything that I could ever have returned from you. He has given more than I could ever ask for. Certainly, this is a small thing he asks me to do. Our third thought today, the Shemitah, fulfilled in Christ. Now, before I give you my thoughts on the Shemitah, I always get a painting from Doug. Doug does a painting for every sermon. We all know that. There's one right there on the wall. We got one in the back. My favorite one that he ever did. Nobody's allowed to touch that one back there. You just leave it on the wall. Don't take it. Doug did a painting on the Shemitah this week. And he didn't read my sermon, okay? And he figured out exactly what is going on in this passage. You go look at it and he got it. He pegged it. He knows exactly what's happening. He is a great theologian in his head. I've never heard him give any theology otherwise, but in his head. And when he puts it on the canvas, he's got it all down. Take a look at it when you can. In Luke 6, Jesus said, And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. The Shemitah anticipates the state of all people who are the Lord's. Through sin, we have become poor before God. In our poverty, we have a debt we cannot pay. The Shemitah of Israel was given to anticipate this. It is a correction of our impoverished and needy state. Jesus saw us in our poverty, and he has given to us freely, asking nothing in return. He extended his hand and paid the debt that we could not pay. 
and he brought us back to a right standing before God. The word Shemitah signifies a letting drop. One opens his hand and lets go of what it holds. Thus, it is a remission. In the New Testament, the noun translated as remission is aphesis. It is derived from the verb aphemai. That carries essentially the same meaning, to let go. Thus, aphesis is a letting go and thus forgiveness. In Hebrews 9.22, the author tells us, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The Lord, through Moses, told the people of Israel to let go of the paltry money they held in their hands in order to restore their fellow brother to a right standing, free from the impoverished state that he could not correct. In Christ, the Lord let go of the most precious thing, his life, in order to restore us to a right standing before God, free from the impoverished state that we were in and that we could not correct. Now, I want you to remember that Friday, we're celebrating the day of the cross, the day that Christ was crucified. Now, I didn't plan this sermon this way. It just happened this week. But this is exactly what this is pointing to, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. And the Lord, through Moses, told the people of Israel not to even take into consideration the wicked thought of the heart that would say, the seventh year, the year of remission is at hand. The nearer the day of release, the more likely there would be loss, and the higher the loss was sure to be. And the Lord, through Christ, was willing to provide us remission even up to the last moment of our existence where not even a single work could be worked back in some attempt to repay the infinite debt that we owed. This is the lesson of the first recorded death after that of the Lord himself. From Luke 23, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The time of the Shemitah was coming. The criminal had no way of paying the debt he owed. He implored his brother Israelite and the letting go. The remission was granted. To see the end of the account, but which is not the end of the story, one has to go on to the Gospel of John, John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. As far as recorded history goes, these are the first two people who died after the death of the Lord. And what a difference between the two. For the one, God was his creditor, and Christ is the remission of his debt because he identified with him. Though a debtor with a debt he could not pay, the Lord, through his shed blood, became the means of God's letting go. And that even though the time of remission was literally moments away, God got nothing in repayment. Not a single tract handed out, not a single person to lead into the kingdom. Not a single Sunday morning saying, it's the Lord's day again. Thank you, Jesus, for having saved me. Nothing was repaid, and yet God, through Christ, extended his hand out to him and forgave the debt 
The other criminal with Jesus did not identify with him, and his debt to God remained unpaid. For him, there is no remission, no letting go, no shemitah. I once watched a History Channel program of what it means to be saved. During the program, a Baptist minister was interviewed. He openly and boastfully proclaimed that he did not accept the premise that someone who had lived a bad life right up until the end could be saved. He said, there is no deathbed forgiveness. That person neither understood the premise of the Shemitah, nor did he understand how it points to Christ, meaning he does not understand the meaning of the word grace. I find it probable that such a lifelong sinner on the deathbed with a heart that is called out to God through Christ is more likely to be saved than that ridiculous minister who has spent his entire life working for what he cannot earn and trying to pay a debt that he cannot pay. The Shemitah was given to end the cycle of human debt and poverty that we find ourselves trapped in, but it is only open to those who are the Lord's. The provision was not granted to the foreigner, but God in Christ took care of that, calling all people near through the blood of Christ if they will simply respond and identify with him. In doing so, we are accepted, and in him, the Shemitah, the letting go, the remission is given. The premise in this was that there would be no poor among the Lord's people, and indeed, he not only brought that about, but he made us rich in Christ in the process. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Imagine someone in Israel walking around finding every single person that needed help and giving to them all. In doing so, he would bring himself to a state of poverty. Who would do that? God in Christ would. And God in Christ did. He offers to do so for you as well today. Today is the day. Your time for needing remission is at hand. And the Lord already knows when you are going to die. It may be today or it may be many long years from now, but he has graciously offered to help you out, even if you will never pay back a penny. He is a great God, a wonderful Lord, and a marvelous Savior. He is Jesus. So wonderful. So wonderful that it came on this day before the cross. So that I hope all of you will spend this week thinking about what Christ did for you. You're poor. You're a beggar. And he had all of heaven's wealth and riches. And he gave it all up. To bring you back to his father. All of it. I think we've done enough of an evangelical call today, a gospel call. The whole sermon is a gospel call. But I will say that you just need to call out to Jesus. Please do that if you've never called to him before. This is what God in Christ has done for you. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Ephesians 1 verse 7. I used the Young's literal translation for this. In whom we have the redemption through his blood, the remission of the trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What a great God. Next week is Isaiah 26, verse 19. What power does the resurrection give? It's entitled, Your Dead Shall Live. That'll be a Resurrection Day sermon. Can't wait. 
actually, I hope we're gone before that, but if we're still here, can't wait. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Anybody online that's watching that read that guy's book, you now know that it has nothing to do with what God is doing in Christ. We're not on a, yeah, I guarantee you, that guy does not remit any debt that is owed to him every seven years. And I guarantee you that every Hebrew Roots movement person on this planet that's working his way to heaven and saying, we need to abide by the law of Moses, not one of them remits anybody's debt in the seventh year. I guarantee you they don't. Pick and choose theology and all it will do is lead you straight to the gates of hell. Jesus Christ offers grace. We are done with these things. There is no pattern in history saying that every seven years America is going to be judged for this. There is no pattern saying this is the year of Jubilee. Those things are typical of Christ. Get your theology straight and you will not be duped by people that write goofy books about things that have nothing to do with the glory that God has revealed in his son. I got a question for you before we get into our poem and the Lord's Supper. The Gospels such as John 12, 12, say that the people called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where is that found in the Old Testament? I want the, the book and the chapter. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. What? What? No, that was 18. Yeah, 118. Let me take you there very quickly. And we'll read that just so you can you can hear it. And then it, it like the psalm that we, I can't believe that psalm that we read today was about the cross. And here we're celebrating the cross. But this also is a psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Okay, well, I'll start in verse 21. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. There you go. Poem, Ha Shemitah, the remission. And the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. The obligations shall cease. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release, this name and not another. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance from his open hand. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, pay heed, please, to what I say, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Not today 
and not tomorrow. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, such you shall not do. But you shall open your hand wide to him, such shall be your deeds, and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, such wickedness you have planned. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, as you were instructed to do, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you. In all the works and in all to which you put your hand, this shall certainly be the case, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and to your needy in your land. Be sure to not simply pass it on to another. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Christ did for us. We're all grateful here, and I would pray that anybody that wants to know more about Jesus will start listening to sermons based on your word, or will open your word and read your word and think on it, and they will find these treasures as well. Lord, we're not going to come to that any other way, so please help us to be wise with our time and not get caught up in sensation. Your book is way sensational enough, just as it is. We thank you for the truths and the wonders and the secrets which are hidden there waiting for us to bring out. Thank you for that. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in the great and glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.